In the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. From the Song of Deborah, Judges chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, possibly from the 11th century BCE. Welcome to A History of the Jewish People, Episode 3, Settling In. Last episode, we covered the late Bronze Age collapse and introduced the Israelites to our story. Today, we'll get to know them a bit better. We'll start by briefly discussing the Book of Judges, the book in the Nevi'im which covers the legends of the 12th and 11th centuries BCE. We'll then shift to talk about the archaeological evidence for the period known as Iron Age I. We'll take a look at the houses, villages, temples, and shrines of the early Israelites. We'll see what they ate and, more importantly, what they did not eat. We'll see how they prayed and how they sacrificed, how they lived, and how they died. As always, maps and images are on the website, historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com. Up until now, I've been relying mostly on archaeological material to tell the story of the Israelites and their predecessors. That's because, so far, the Bible has not yet been a reliable source. The Torah was written over the course of a few centuries and compiled around the 6th century BCE. That means that the period covered by the Torah would have been anywhere upwards of six centuries past by the time it was written down. We can therefore think of figures like Abraham, Moses, and possibly even Joshua, the supposed conqueror of Palestine, as being similar to King Arthur. Some may have been genuine historical personalities, but everything about them has been fictionalized to the point where they are essentially just legends. Their stories certainly contain a lot of meaning, but that has less to do with their own actions and more to do with the narratives that we have built around them. The quote-unquote historical part of the Bible consists of Deuteronomy, the last book in the Torah, and the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, in the Nevi'im, or Prophets. Together, they tell the story of the Israelites from before the conquest of Palestine up until the fall of the two monarchies. This corpus, known as the Deuteronomic History, was probably written in the 8th to 6th centuries BCE. Unlike the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the Deuteronomic History probably relied on earlier historical information, including written chronicles. The farther we look back in history, however, the less reliable its information becomes. We'll get to know the Deuteronomic history more over the next many episodes, referencing the textual narrative as it becomes increasingly trustworthy. The Book of Judges, which covers the period following the Israelite settlement and before the monarchies, known to archaeologists as the Iron Age I period, has limited historical value. The eponymous judges were legendary heroes, each of whom saved Israel from a foreign enemy. Although each judge's story is unique, they all conform to a general pattern. The Israelites, who were unable to purge paganism from Palestine during their initial conquest, slip in their monotheistic worship and turn to idolatry. As punishment, 
their god sends their neighbors, such as the people of Ammon, Moab, Midian, Amalek, Aram, and Philistia, to conquer Israel. The Israelites languish under their yoke until their god selects a judge to save them. He, or indeed she, does so, and Israel enjoys typically 40 years of peace until they turn once again to idolatry, and the cycle repeats. The book of Judges repeatedly stresses that the God of Israel was its king, and the judges therefore take on the rules more of his generals and prophets. If we strip away its theological narrative, the book of Judges presents to us a collection of tales of folk heroes of the distant Israelite past. Though their stories are clearly fictionalized, they can reveal some aspects of early Israelite society. To begin with, Palestine and Transjordan were home to many different peoples, not just the Israelites. The peoples who kept attacking the Israelites, the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Midianites, Amalekites, Philistines, Aramaeans, and Lopohanites, they were all real. Most of them were similar to the Israelites. Archaeological surveys have revealed that Moab and Ammon, located in Transjordan, were almost indistinguishable from Israel, and quite likely came from the same groups as the Israelites, either local Canaanites or settled Shasu nomads. Other peoples, like the Midianites and the Amalekites, were nomadic, while the Philistines and Canaanites were settled groups. None, however, had a centralized state yet in our story. The Israelites portrayed in the Book of Judges were also very fractious. When the Israelites would fight one of the groups we just mentioned, it would only ever be one or two tribes engaged in the war. The story of Samson, for example, once mentions the tribe of Judah, but otherwise is concerned only with the tribe of Dan. In fact, as we mentioned last episode, the tribe of Dan may have originally been the Danian Sea People, and Samson may have been an earlier hero of the Danian. The one exception to the general disunity of the Israelites occurs in the so-called Song of Deborah and Barak. The third major judge was Deborah, a prophet of either the Benjamin or Ephraim tribes. Her story is told twice, once in prose form in chapter 4 of the Book of Judges, and again as a poem in chapter 5. This poem, with archaic language and an unusual list of tribes, may actually date back to the period of the Judges. This dating, which was accepted without question for a while, has now been disputed, so I can't say for sure that it was from the 11th century BCE. In the poem, Deborah calls upon the general Barak to lead a coalition of Israelites against the Canaanite king of Chazor. Six tribes answer the summons, and in the poem, Deborah calls out four others that did not participate. The Israelite coalition defeats the Canaanites, but it is another woman that actually deals the killing blow to the general by betraying him in his own tent. The Book of Judges, therefore, hints at a relatively egalitarian Israelite society during the Iron Age I period. Judges did not need any noble pedigree, or even to be male, which was usually prerequisite for power in the ancient world. That being said, Israelite society was certainly patriarchal, and Deborah was the only female judge. Regardless of whether or not the Song of Deborah dates back to the 11th century BCE, we certainly do have writing from this early period. Don't expect any lengthy poems or scrolls of parchment. No, the writing we have 
comes from fragments of pottery, with at most a few letters painted in ink or drawn right in the clay. In 2019, archaeologists excavating at Herbet al-Rai in the Shvila, ancient Judah, discovered a potsherd with early alphabetic writing. I've posted an image of the inscription on the website if you'd like to take a look. The script used, known today as Proto-Canaanite, was the ancestor of the ancient Hebrew script and was one of the first ever alphabetic writing systems. Only a handful of inscriptions survived from the beginning of the Iron Age, including the one from Herbet al-Rai. The writing on the shirt is fragmentary, but it appears to spell the name of Yerubal, another name for the judge Gideon. Although the Book of Judges claims that the name Yerubal means fights against Baal, this seems to be a cover-up for the more accurate translation of May Baal be great. The Book of Judges, therefore, accurately preserves both the names of early Israelites and their polytheistic religious practices. It is typical for names to contain the name of a deity, with the most common being El. The god El, who originally was a Canaanite god, was assimilated into the Israelite god and was used in many biblical names, including Elizabeth, Nathaniel, Samuel, Elijah, and even Israel. El was not the only god who could appear in names, however, with the Israelite god, Baal, and even possibly Sherah being used. It will take many centuries for the Israelites' polytheism to be fully weeded out. But, as much as the Book of Judges can reveal about the society of pre-monarchic Israel, it does contain inaccuracies and leaves gaps in our understanding of the period. As I said in episode 1, hold your horses, or, or camels, for the introduction of everyone's favorite spitting desert pack animal. Though the Book of Judges says the Midianites used camels, they did not. Still a few centuries away. Luckily, archaeology can help reveal a fuller picture of the Israelites' lives. To get a sense of Israelite society, we'll take a look at Hirbet Radana, a typical village of the Iron Age period, or of the time of the Israelite settlement. Hirbet Radana is now located in the West Bank, but would have been in the central hill country just north of Jerusalem in the tribe of Benjamin or Ephraim. Hirbet Radana was the largest village that has been excavated of over 600 Israelite villages that have been identified. Though it may have been the largest, to call it large would be a massive overstatement. In total, Kirbet Rodana had a whopping seven houses. If that doesn't impress you, just wait until you hear how big these houses were. The largest occupied an area of, wait for it, almost 850 square feet, or 87 square meters for the metric listeners. Another group of three houses totaled just under a thousand square feet, or about 90 square meters, an inhospitable size by our standards today, but what would have been common for ancient Israelite dwellings. The village would have been home to four to six extended families, each likely consisting of four to eight members, giving us a total population of a few dozen. There may have been a few more structures, but construction of a modern road has possibly destroyed some archaeological remains. These houses were all of the so-called three- or four-room variety. Canaanite houses were typically laid out in one direction, meaning that rooms would all be strung together 
and you have to walk through each room to reach the next. This created what archaeologists term a hierarchy of access, since the rooms toward the back of the house would have been more private and only accessible through each of the other rooms. The houses at Herbet Radana, however, were organized around an open courtyard area, which typically provided access to the other rooms. We'll take a look at the northernmost house, since that one's the best preserved. This house had three rooms, a main room, an abutting side room, and a back room along the short edge of the other two. In total, the house was about 12 by 6 meters. The entrance was in the center of the short wall and opened into the largest space in the house. There was a taboon oven on the left side of the room and a row of six square stone pillars on the right. Quite likely, the space was open. The room to the right was separated by some of the best preserved pillars in ancient Israel each built of a single stone over a meter tall. In the neighboring house, the wall was then filled in with smaller stones, but in this one, the pillars stood free and the wall was open to the courtyard. A door in the corner of the side room led to the back room, which contained a cistern cut into the limestone bedrock. Above this back room, there almost certainly would have been a second story, which would have served as the main living area for the family. This house would have been typical of a large Israelite house. It was a three-room house, with a courtyard, one side room, and one back room, though other similar dwellings could have had one pillared side room on either side of the courtyard, to bring the total up to four rooms on the ground floor. The four-room house, as this paradigm is known, was a stable and possible ethnic marker of Israelite settlements. The easy access to all rooms provided by the three or four room house has also led scholars to speculate that it may indicate that Israelite society was relatively egalitarian. That being said, although there wasn't much social stratification between classes, Israelite society, as we've mentioned, was heavily patriarchal. The Beit Ab, or extended family, literally house of the father, was the main social and economic unit. Israelite society was also patrilocal, meaning that sons would inherit and daughters would be married off and live with their husband's family. Outside the house was a small cobbled street, and the eastern houses were protected by a stone wall just over a meter tall. The inhabitants of Khirbet Rodana seemed to have made a living growing the staple Mediterranean crops, grapes and olives. These cash crops grow well on slopes in Mediterranean climates, so the people of Khirbet Rodana would have worked right over the edge of their hill. Producing oil or wine from these fruits would have taken some more labor. Olive presses will become common features of Israelite and Jewish villages, but they have yet to arrive in Palestine at our point in the narrative. For now, any olive oil or wine production would have been done by hand and with stone tools. Some of the people of Khirbet Rodana would have also worked as potters. Over 2,000 pottery sherds were found at Khirbet Rodana, dating to the early Iron Age, most of which were used for storage. In general, Israelite pottery was simple and rarely decorated. The forms they used were descended from, but less varied than, earlier Canaanite ones. While trade certainly occurred, few Israelite vessels were imported internationally. Microscopic analyses of the shirts from Khirbet Rodana 
has shown that most of the containers, which probably would have been used to hold and transport olive oil and wine, were made locally. Cooking pots were largely imported from the Shvila, while bowls and jugs came from the southern coastal plains or the Negev Desert. Besides the houses, storerooms were also found containing lots of pottery fragments. Among these, only one ceremonial piece of ceramics was found, an enormous bowl decorated on the inside with spouts shaped like heads of bulls. The way the Israelites would have used this vessel is unknown. There was also a jug handle with a fragmentary inscription in early Hebrew. Only parts of three letters survive, an aleph, a chet, and either a lamed or a resh. It has been suggested that the letters spell out the name Aharim, which would have been a personal name, or may have been the subtribe of Benjamin to which the inhabitants of Chirbet Rodana belonged. Like at most other Israelite ruins, almost no pig bones were found at Chirbet Rodana. Only one was discovered, which the excavators believed was from Byzantine times, a millennium and a half after the Iron Age occupation. Historians debate whether or not a taboo against the consumption of pork was a sign of Israelite ethnicity, but the custom of not eating pork is one of the oldest in Judaism. There are two main theories as to why the Israelites avoided eating pork. One is that the custom was a holdover from their nomadic past, since pigs cannot be herded the same way as sheep and goats, making pig meat seem foreign. The other theory is that the Israelites were beginning to identify themselves in opposition with the Philistines. The Philistines quickly became the arch-rivals of the Israelites, and since the Philistines consumed a lot of pork, the Israelites might have chosen not to at all. We don't have evidence for the religious practices or burials at Herbet Radana, but we can speculate on how their villagers would have lived and died based on information from other sites around Israel. First of all, the people of Herbet Radana probably would have worshipped the Israelite national god, the one by the name of yud heh Their faith, however, was non-monotheistic. In addition to the Israelite god, they would have venerated Baal and Asherah, along with numerous other deities, mostly Canaanite. We don't have a great understanding of how the Israelites would have prayed or sacrificed, but we can be confident that they practiced both private and public forms of veneration. At home, Figures known as teraphim would have served as idols, possibly in honor of certain ancestors. These may have been used to aid in communication with spirits, as divination was also practiced. Female clay statues, known as Judean pillar figurines, were also common, and may have represented the popular goddesses Asherah or Astarte, and likely had some significance for fertility. Incense, grain, and libation offerings were common forms of domestic worship as well. The people of Khirbet Rodana certainly celebrated major life events, though which ones and the manner of their customs is somewhat unknown. Circumcision is, of course, a key marker of Judaism in the Bible and today, though it obviously doesn't appear in the archaeological record, so we can't be sure if it was practiced by the early Israelites. One scholar has suggested that there was a female coming-of-age ritual, though again, I can't tell you much about it. They also may have participated in rituals at a local cult center. The Temple of Jerusalem only became the focus of Jewish religion leading up to and then following the Babylonian exile, and hadn't even been built during the Iron Age I period. 
The nearest sanctuary to Kirbet Radama, then, would have been Shiloh, one of the most important centers in the Judges' period. There likely would have been about half a dozen to a dozen such sites throughout Israel, so that one could be reached within a day's march from anywhere. Each site was unique. Shiloh was reported to hold the Ark of the Covenant, while another, dubbed the Bull Site by archaeologists, would have been an open-air sanctuary centered around an altar stone and a small bronze idol of a bull. Regardless of the focus of worship, all sites were probably used to conduct animal sacrifices, with either the full animal, usually a sheep or goat, being sacrificed, or just a portion, while the rest would have been eaten by the congregation. There were three main sacrifices a year for the three harvests, still commemorated today by the holidays of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Other sacrifices included ones to celebrate the clan and to commemorate the new month, which would have been done presumably at home. Another important milestone in life was, of course, death. We can expect that the inhabitants of Chirbet Rodana, like most Israelites, buried their dead either directly in the ground or in a cave, natural or man-made. Tombs or cemeteries were often familial, and Israelite men, at least, often considered it important to be buried with their paternal ancestors. The dead were considered to be spirits living in a murky netherworld that existed at the far edges of this world, to the distant north or west, in caves, and beneath the water. Ancestor spirits were weak, but could intercede in the lives of the living, who could offer to them. Since there was a limited conception of the afterlife, the dead were often buried with grave goods, some of which would have been used in life, and others which were purely ritualistic. Pottery and food were common, as were amulets which often depicted Egyptian gods, the most popular of which was the dwarf god Bess. Burial would ideally occur on the day of death. Friends and relatives would then mourn for one, seven, or thirty days, depending on their relation. Mourning could include wailing, tearing of clothes, and absence from certain luxuries. At least in later periods, mourners would revisit the tomb after a year for rites and sometimes for burial, but I'll cover that in a later episode, when Morocco tombs become more popular. The last noteworthy find at Khirbet Radana is a layer of ash dating to the end of the early Iron Age. Similar destruction layers have been found at many other early Israelite sites. Next episode, we'll discuss the transition from the Judges period to monarchy, and hear different stories about why, and when, this destruction occurred. Until then, you can reach us by email at historyofthejewishpeople at gmail.com, or find us at our humble website, historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com. It would also be amazing if you could follow us on Instagram at, you guessed it, historyofthejewishpeople. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a review and a mention to your friends, enemies, lovers, co-workers, celebrity heroes, cats, dogs, and pet marsupials for you listeners down under. The music for this episode was, as always, written and produced by Jacob Shaw. As I promised I'd answer last episode, the average airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow is about 20 miles per hour for the European swallow, and probably double that for the African swallow. Please do let me know if you get the reference. And finally, thank you all for listening, and I hope you tune in next time for episode 4, The Kingmaker. Kingmaker